Well, please remain standing and let's take out our Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel this morning once again. And once again to chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, this morning, verses 18 through 27. That will be our reading. That will be our text that we'll be looking at today. We thank the Lord that he has given to us his word by which we learn of him. And we learn here of, of Christ and his continued work. Beginning in verse 18, then Mark chapter 12. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Our Father... Again, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that our time in the word now would be profitable to us. Uh, Would you teach us through this this passage, Father? Would you uh, point us, as always, to Christ? And would you glorify yourself? We pray, Father, for our understanding uh, to be keen, Lord, on this, Lord, and we, we pray that uh, you would bless us through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Keep your Bibles out, as always. Well, it is still Tuesday of Passion Week here in Jerusalem, in Mark's Gospel here in chapter 12, as Mark is recording For us, the continuing sort of rapid fire of confrontations and attacks on Jesus. First, remember, his authority was challenged by representatives of the Jewish high court, known as the Sanhedrin, as he walked and talked in the temple. That was Tuesday morning. Next, after he had exposed the Jewish leaders as as the subjects of the parable of the wicked tenants, the tenants of the Lord's vineyard, they did not take kindly to that and have since been seeking an opportunity to arrest him. They've plotted together and sent a strange combination of groups, combination of theologians, the Pharisees, and politicians, the Herodians, to try to trap Jesus in his words. We looked at that last week. 
as they first baited him with flattery and then asked a question that to them there was no good answer to. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? All, we are reminded, in what has to be the morning hours of this single day of Tuesday. So as we've gone through these, we've seen that now Jesus is three for three in these confrontations. He has seen through every ruse, every facade. He has avoided every trap. And in fact, in every situation, has turned the situation back onto his accusers, revealing them to be the ones who are without knowledge and without a true relationship with God. And in our passage this morning, the confrontations continue. Last week it was the Pharisees that came to Jesus. Now a group of of Sadducees are dispatched to confront Christ and to seek to, to trick him. And the first thing that we want to look at here this morning is the question that they ask, a question from the Sadducees. As we, we come to that, and that's there in verse 18, let me give you just a little bit of background uh, before we, we jump into this here. All through the Gospels, we read about, we hear about, we discuss these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We read about them together because they are very often together, and they are the two primary religious groups in Judea during this time. They each, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, came into being and rose to prominence earlier during that time, uh, the intertestamental period, that time between the end, the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And these two groups, though they're always or often mentioned together, they had divergent views, divergent from one another on several issues. The Sadducees, who are the group that are the focus of this passage this morning, they did not believe in the immortality of the soul or an afterlife. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees did not believe in the existence of angels or demons. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees did not believe in what we would call the sovereignty of God. They believed that man and his deeds determine his fate. So on that point, we could say the Pharisees were like the Calvinists and the Sadducees were like the Pelagians of their day. Um, We can say that the Pharisees, then, who who are typically portrayed as Jesus' opponents, and very often are, they were in comparison with the Sadducees, they were the conservatives. They uh, held very closely to the Scriptures, uh, theologically conservative. And the Sadducees, they were the liberals, the conservative liberals of the day. Uh, In regard to the Scripture, the Sadducees accepted only the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, The Pharisees, of course, recognized not only the entire Uh, written Old Testament, but they also put much stock in the oral tradition. Uh, We hear often of the tradition of the elders. That was something that the Pharisees held to, but the Sadducees didn't. And finally, whereas the Pharisees fully believed in the, the afterlife and the resurrection of the dead, 
The Sadducees, as Mark tells us in verse 18, say there is no resurrection. It's an important distinction between the two, this idea of the resurrection, very foundational to them. In fact, it's mentioned a couple of times in the book of Acts. In fact, Paul, Paul uses that, his knowledge of that distinction to get himself out of a jam in Acts chapter 23. Uh, listen to this. Uh, it says, now, now when Paul perceived, so Paul's been brought before, interestingly enough, the Sanhedrin, the same group that, that's now trying to trap Jesus. And we read that when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, Luke writes, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent... The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So not only were they, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, of different opinions, they were at times violently of different opinions on this. So those are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Last week, as we saw, the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, asked Jesus a political question with theological undertones to it. Now, here this morning, the Sadducees ask him a purely theological question. Again, hoping to trip Jesus up and to potentially erode some of his support that he had among the people. So they ask him a question. And it's laid out quite nicely here. Uh, the question consists of Scripture, or a paraphrase of Scripture, and then the application of that Scripture with a question about the application. Uh, verse 19 is the question. He says, Teacher, uh, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. We'll stop there. That's the, that's the quotation or the paraphrase from Scripture. And this passage that they are paraphrasing is, again, as these are Sadducees, this is understandably from the Pentateuch. Especially it is from, or specifically it's from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verses 5 and 6. And here's what it says. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That's Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. And this, you may recognize, this is the law of the, what's called the leveret marriage. Sometimes we pronounce it leverite, 
Right? But it doesn't have anything to do with the Levites, even though the name Levi is in there. Uh, the, the term leveret comes from a, a Latin word, levir, which means a husband's brother. So the leveret marriage law was put in place, as we read here, by God in the Old Testament for the purpose of preserving a family name and a family inheritance. When a man died, the responsibility for maintaining his widow and any children that she might have fell on her husband's closest male relative, usually a brother. If the woman was childless, the brother was expected to marry the widow and the firstborn male child of that marriage was regarded as the child of the deceased man. And in that way, the name and the memory of the deceased person, the deceased man, was, was preserved. And the establishment of his property and his inheritance within the family line was preserved as well. That was the purpose of this leveret marriage. Now, the most well-known example of this concept is the book of Ruth, which providentially we're going to take a couple of weeks, uh, beginning next week, to take a little break, and we're going to look at the book of Ruth. Uh, We've looked at it before. We're going to go through it again. But that's the background, this leveret marriage is the background here uh, to the question that the Sadducees ask Jesus. However, they pose to Jesus a question, a complication in this. It's in verses 20 through 23. Um, And it is through this complication that they hope to see Jesus trip up. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. But here's the complication, beginning in verse 20. They say there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. It's interesting, uh, as I read this, it makes me think that that many of us, many people, uh, have a tendency to with any doctrine, if they have questions about it, they sort of go to the extreme, go to the borders, and and sort of ask this, well, what if this, uh, in in these strange sort of situations? And that's what they do here. And it's not just one, it's not just the husband, it's not, not just the brother, it's not just two or three, but seven. A man dies, his brother marries the widow as he, as he should, then he dies, but no children, and so on. Through all seven of these brothers, <laughs> you remember the old movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? This is like one bride for seven brothers. But finally, the woman herself dies, and having had no children to, to any of the brothers. So, and then comes the kicker, and that's in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. It's interesting that they say, in the resurrection. They're being somewhat cynical there, right? Somewhat sarcastic. They don't believe in the resurrection. Um, Which is the point here. They are implicitly attempting to show the absurdity 
of the doctrine of the resurrection as they see it by showing the problems that it produces. And of course to call Jesus out on it because Jesus himself believes in the resurrection, doesn't he? In fact, he's spoken on several occasions already about his own resurrection that he says is going to take place at the end of this week or at the beginning of the next week. Remember his prophecies to the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he would suffer many things from the Jews, he would be delivered over and be killed, and on the third day, what? He would rise from the dead. He would be resurrected. Of course, a a demonstration there by Christ in his resurrection of his victory over death and over the grave, a sign that God had accepted his own substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, and a foreshadowing and an assurance, Christian, of our own resurrection on the last day. The Sadducees, though, test Jesus with this application. Of scripture. In this situation, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, in the eternal state? What if this happened? What would, what would it be? What would be the case? Well, that's the question. And then in verse 24, we have an answer from Jesus. And he begins his answer, which comes really in two parts here, but he begins it with a a pretty harsh-sounding statement. This is uh, now. Now Jesus can do this, but uh, people who talk about interactions with with people would probably not recommend that you begin a a disputation with someone in this way. But Jesus says in verse twenty-four, "Is this not the reason that you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God?" <laughs> That's a rough start. But, as the Pharisees had noted right back in verse 14, Jesus is not one who is swayed by appearances. He doesn't back down. He's not threatened by the position of the Sadducees. Remember, he tells it like it is. The Pharisees had flattered him by saying, if you're wrong, you're wrong. And the Sadducees were wrong. And Jesus will now explain why. First, he says, because you don't know the Scriptures. Now, that's like telling a world-renowned surgeon that he doesn't know anything about medicine. Uh, These were the Sadducees, the scribes. Uh, They were the ones who, who studied the Scriptures. They know this. But Jesus says, you don't know the Scriptures. You don't know them as well as you think you know them. That's a problem with a lot of people today. A lot of people in churches today. A lot of people pastoring churches today, teaching in churches today, leading churches today. They don't know the Scriptures. They don't know God's Word. In many areas, the church has gotten away from requiring their pastors, their teachers, to to have training in the Scriptures. Uh, We've faded into this therapeutic model of preaching, that the the attitude is what counts, the warmth, the inclusivity, the, the, like I said, the attitude of the person has replaced the necessity for a knowledge of the Bible. 
and of the doctrines that it teaches of the man in the pulpit. I can't shake from my mind a statement that I heard several years ago, many years ago now, by the founder and leader of one of the biggest groups of churches, certainly in California, if not in the nation. If I mentioned it, you would know, you would know right away. Uh, but the leader, the founder of this group, once said this, I would rather have the wrong facts and the right attitude than the right facts and the wrong attitude. Now, in the first place, I would rather have the right facts and the right attitude. But if I had to choose one, as a teacher of the Word of God, as a preacher of God's Word, I would rather have my facts right. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians? In Philippians 1.15, uh, talking about those who have, uh, are preaching the gospel there in Philippi or in Rome where he was, he says, Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So see, there's, there's the tension there. Some have the attitude right, some don't. What does Paul say about that? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, he said, I rejoice. I don't care about their attitude, Paul says. If they're trying to get me in more trouble, and they're preaching Christ, I rejoice. As long as Christ is proclaimed. As long as the facts are right. You know, he addressed the other side of that to the Galatian church, right? As far as getting your facts right and having the right gospel, he said, if anybody, an angel from heaven, preaches to you a different gospel, different facts, a different gospel than what we, the apostles, have preached to you, what did he say? Well, it's okay as long as he was sincere. No, he said, if they're doing that, preaching a different gospel, let him be cursed. Jesus says to the Sadducees, here's why you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. Nor, he says, and here's the second reason, he says that they, they don't, that they get this wrong. He says you don't know the power of God. You don't know what God says and you don't know what God can do. You underestimate God. You don't know his power. Good thing we don't do that. Do we ever do that? If we don't say it, I think we think it, or at least we act like we think it, that we don't know his power. We think, oh, God could never do that. That's too hard. That's too difficult. Too many variables would have to be worked out. But God is not a man. He is not limited like you and I are. With me, you give me more than a couple of variables, and I'll foul it up. But not God. But Jesus says to the Sadducees, in these two things you err, and you err greatly. And then Jesus explains himself by showing that the Sadducees are wrong both in regard to their understanding of the nature of the resurrected state 
and the very fact of the resurrection. And those two things are going to be the last two points that we're going to look at this morning. So in our overall outline for this passage, number three is the nature of the resurrected state. Jesus says that the very basis for their question is wrong. They've said, well, here's what the Bible says about the current state of things here. The law of the Old Testament for the people of the nation of Israel in that time and in that place It was, in this situation, dictated by the law of leveret marriage. The responsibility of a man to his deceased, uh, married, childless brother was that he would follow this law in order to preserve the name and the inheritance of his dead brother. But the error of the Sadducees in this, to the degree that they were even honest in, in asking the question, their error was in assuming that in the resurrection, in the resurrected state, the eternal state, in the life that follows the resurrection, in assuming that everything continues just the same as it was. That the eternal state is just basically a continuation of this world and its structures and its laws and its relationships. But now Jesus, Jesus now with the authority that the Pharisees had challenged him about earlier, earlier in the passage, earlier in the day, Jesus with that authority now speaks authoritatively as one who knows. And he says in verse 25, He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now notice there the not-so-subtle foreshadowing of the next verse, which talks about the resurrection itself. When, When Jesus says here to them, he says, for when they rise up, not if, not if for the sake of argument we assume that they rise up. He says, when they rise up. So he sort of tipped his hand as far as where he stands on the resurrection. He says, when that happens, though, things are not the same as they are now, not the same as they were under the old covenant. When they rise from the dead, Jesus said, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He says, the the eternal state, heaven, we would call it, is not just this world sort of extended out into eternity. The place of resurrection life, we know, is referred to as the new heavens and the new earth. And so it is that the situation will be a new situation. Specifically here, Jesus says that the institution of marriage will not continue. And if we think about it for a minute, we realize that it won't need to. The primary purposes that God instituted marriage are, first, procreation. Second, companionship and the enjoyment of physical intimacy. And three, adding to Christ's church. Well, in heaven, there won't be any more death, so there won't be any need to procreate. 
In heaven, there will be perfect, universal companionship beyond anything that we can imagine. No need for a man to have a special helper. There won't be any loneliness. And third, in heaven, the church will be complete. There won't be any adding to it. So the purposes for marriage will no longer exist in heaven. Now, that's not to say that husbands and wives here won't know each other or that they, even that they know that they were husband and wife, but the institution will not be necessary, will not be continued. Now, for some, that's good news, and that is very sad. The reasons for it are very unfortunate. But for others, the fact that, of the thought that there will be no more marriage in heaven na- uh, seems now like a tragic thing. Cindy and I had some friends in Southern California. That it was almost a crisis of their faith to read a passage like this. But to them... And to people who who say that this is a, a bad thing, I say to them, you do not know the power of God. His power to make all things new. His power to give something even better than the best of marriages. But we can trust God that he will. What it will be, what it will look like, how... It could possibly be better than a great marriage here, a great companionship, everything that goes with that as as God has given it to us. I don't know. But God can do it. We know the power of God. What will heaven be like in that way? What will heaven be like, period? It's true that the Bible does not give us many details about heaven, does it? The result of the resurrection uh, for those in Christ, the, the, the goal of the resurrection. And what it does tell us, it tells us really in, in generalities, in shadows, glorious shadows, but shadows nonetheless. I mean, we know, according to John 14, 1, that Jesus said that in my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back and get you and take you there. We know that about heaven. And, of course, the greatest thing about that place, also from John 14, is that where he is, we will be also. Something that John echoes as he writes at the very end of the Scripture in Revelation 21. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We know that about heaven, that we will be in the presence of God. We also know, according to that same passage, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, that death will be no more, Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We know that about heaven. And that is the case because, he says at the end of that verse, for the former things have passed away. These things here, the way things are here, that is all gone. That is all passed away. 
We also know about heaven that we will know as we are known. Our knowledge will be greatly increased. We know that we will be like Christ in glorified bodies. We know that we'll be without sin. And we know that in the resurrection, we will not marry or be given in marriage. But we'll be, Jesus says to the Sadducees, like the angels in heaven who are not married, who do not marry. Now, keep in mind that 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 is the scope of Jesus' statement here. He's not making a full definitive statement regarding our likeness to angels. That's not his purpose. We will be like angels, Jesus is saying, in this way that we will not marry or be given in marriage. We have some things in common with angels. We have some things not in common with angels. Uh, I need to hurry, but let me, I'll just run through some very quickly. We have some things in common with them. We are created beings. They are created beings. We are subordinate to God as they are. We will live forever as they will. Our purpose, like the angels, is to glorify God, to serve Him. And our highest joy, like the angels, is to do so. We, like them, are not perfect in knowledge. We, like them, in heaven, we will be like them in that we will be sinless as they are. And in heaven, in the resurrected state, we will be like the angels in that we will not marry or be given in marriage. But there's also some very important differences between us and angels. First, they are a different class of creature than we are. We do not turn into angels when we die. Thank you, Mary Melody's cartoons. Fallen people, there's another difference, fallen people can be and are redeemed by God through Christ. Not so fallen angels or demons as we know them, they are not redeemed, they will not be redeemed, they will be punished. No angel will be able to sing, as we often say, will be able to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. That's our song. Another difference is that angels are not created in the image of God like you are. We, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.30, will judge angels, not the other way around. And wondrously, we as redeemed people share in the life and the death and the resurrection and the exalted position of Christ. The angels don't. They look into all those things, just trying to figure out what's going on. So we will be, Jesus said to the Sadducees, like the angels in heaven. Not married, not given in marriage. See, his statement to them about this is to explain to them that they've gone off the rails in their very question because, well, they don't know what they're talking about, Jesus is saying. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the power of God. They don't understand what God has said and what he can do and what he will do. Now, that may not be particularly devastating to the Sadducees. Why? Because they don't believe in the resurrection anyway. 
And now Jesus is going to address that as we come to look at the fact of the resurrection. In verse 26, he corrects their misunderstanding of the resurrection itself. He says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus says, And, you know, I've answered this question about the marriage and the Leverite marriage and all of that. And he says, And, and I'll give you this for no charge, as for the dead being raised which you didn't really ask about, let me add this. And then to defend the the doctrine of the resurrection, Jesus goes, as we would expect, to Scripture. Have you not read, he says, in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, (laughs) that's that's their way of saying in Exodus chapter 3. They didn't have all of that. They had to go by a description of what was being said. So in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, he's saying the proof of the resurrection is right there in your own scripture. Haven't you read it? Now it's also true that the Old Testament doesn't speak very much and in very much detail about the resurrection like the New Testament does. It's all over the New Testament. But it does refer to it. It does establish it. It does enough to establish it as the, by the time of Christ as the de facto position of the Pharisees by the time of the New Testament. And it does speak about it. In Isaiah 26, 19, it says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. In Ezekiel 37, the, the whole passage about the, dry, the valley of the dry bones. In Daniel 12, verse 2, it's actually pretty clear there, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. I mean, that sounds like Jesus uses almost the same words in John 5, 28 and 29. Also the Psalms, Psalm 16, 9 through 11, Psalm 17, 15, speak of the resurrection. Well, if that's true, if there's all of that, then why did Jesus turn them to Exodus 3 and the record of Moses and the burning bush, a passage that is not really about the resurrection? Well, the answer, maybe you caught it, because these are Sadducees he's talking to. They wouldn't accept Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or the Psalms as authoritative, as proof. But they accept Exodus. So Jesus says, it's even there. So that doesn't excuse you. In the well-known episode of Moses and the burning bush, in verse 6, God says to Moses just what he says here in Mark chapter 12. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was, I am the God of those who died 400 years, more than 400 years before Moses. And Jesus says in verse 27, he is not God of the dead, but God of the living. And the implication here is that they, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, then must be alive. If I am their God, they must still be alive, and indeed their souls are with God. And if their souls are with God, their bodies will not be abandoned. Their bodies will join them at some point because man was created and man remains a body and soul creature. We are not simply a a soul trapped in a body. That was the Romans' idea, the Greeks' idea. Now, admittedly, the details given by those other verses in in the Old Testament, and certainly, like I said, the, the full treatment of the New Testament on the topic of the resurrection, they're not present in this passage in Exodus 3. But this is Scripture, And there is enough here to show that the Sadducees are wrong to reject the fact of the resurrection. They are wrong. Or, as Jesus says to them in verse 27, they are quite wrong. And so Jesus, once again, now he's four for four. He brings to nothing the attempt of the enemy's of Christ to discredit Christ. And they end up discrediting themselves. Here, by the way that they show themselves to be ignorant of Scripture and ignorant of God, which Jesus points out to them. Ignorant of Scripture and ignorant of God. Beloved, let us not be so. As I said, the the New Testament and the light, it sheds on this topic of the resurrection, beginning with the glorious resurrection of our Lord himself. It's beyond dispute. You can choose to not believe it, but it would be because you don't know the Scripture. I mean, somehow there have been those in the church who have dared to call themselves Christians and yet have chosen to reject the doctrine of the resurrection, including the resurrection of Christ, some of them. And to them, and to any who reject this central, cardinal doctrine of the Scripture, God's Word says to them this morning, you are wrong because you do not know the Scripture nor the power of God. You are quite wrong. But is this even important? Is the resurrection and the resurrection of Christ from the dead really that important? Is it a salvation issue, as people like to to say? Is it an essential doctrine? You'd better believe it is. Let me read what Paul said about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ 
have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Is the resurrection important? Is that doctrine important for you to believe? Absolutely. Because the resurrection is important. If it didn't happen, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, it's all over. All bets are off. All hope is gone. But Christ has been raised from the dead. And that is an assurance, believer, that you will be raised from the dead. So Jesus, here to close, not only frustrates the latest attempt of the Sanhedrin to entrap him, but he, our Lord Jesus himself, affirms the great biblical doctrine of the resurrection. That as Jesus did on the third day, so we will do on the last day. In the twinkling of an eye, as the scripture says, be raised from death to life. In the same body, but that body perfected, made immortal, made fit for eternity with God in heaven. As the Bible says, it will be made like Christ's glorious body. And in that body, beloved, we will live with God and Christ and the saints in the recreated heaven and earth forever and ever And so we pray with the church, Lord, come quickly. Our Father, we thank you for the great truth of the resurrection. First of all, thank you that you have raised your son from the dead on the third day. Since it was impossible for him to be held by the power of death. And as a way of showing that the sacrifice of Christ was fully acceptable and did what it was intended to do. And we thank you, Lord, also that you have promised us that on the last day that we will be raised from the dead. And that we then will be with you forever in bodies that will no longer be subject to pain and sickness and weakness and forgetfulness and sin and suffering. But we will be with you forever in heaven. Help us to set our eyes on the things that are above, O God, and to look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.